to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Thursday. It's the 14th of July, Bastille Day if you're French, and the time's 8.03 in Hong Kong. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines on Money Talk on Radio 3. Inflation in the United States has surged to its highest level in over 40 years. The rate of consumer price rises hits 9.1% in the 12 months to June, from 8.6% in May. Inflation increased by 1.3% from May alone. The rate of inflation in the US is now the highest since November 1981. Price gains were broad-based, but a 7.5% increase in the energy index contributed to almost half of the jump in headline inflation. Following the inflation report, Fed Fund's futures markets priced in a better than 66% chance of a 100 basis point interest rate hike at the Fed's next meeting on the 26th to the 27th of July and an almost 100% chance of another 75 basis point rise in September. China's export growth beats market expectations in June. Exports grew by 17.9% last month from a year earlier to 331 billion. It was the fastest pace since January. China's total trade surplus was a record 98 billion US dollars in June compared with 79 billion in May. Canada has surprised markets by raising interest rates by 100 basis points to 2.5%. It's the biggest rate hike by the Bank of Canada in more than two decades, and it puts the benchmark overnight rate at its highest level since 2008. And elsewhere, on the interest rate front, the Bank of Korea raised its seven-day repurchase rate by a record 50 basis points to 2.25% after five previous hikes of 25 basis points. It's the biggest increase since the BOK started using interest rates as its main monetary policy tool in the late 1990s. And the Reserve Bank of New Zealand on Wednesday raised their official cash rate by 50 basis points from 2 to 2.5% in a widely expected move. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Nitin Dialdus at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold of SafePro Group. <laughs> On Wall Street, US stocks closed lower following the dire inflation report. The S&P 500 index fell for the fourth straight day, dropping as much as 1.4% before clawing back some of its losses to close half a percent lower at 3,802. The Dow also closed lower for the fourth consecutive session, losing 209 points to 30,773. The Nasdaq Composite Index outperformed. It slipped 0.2% to 11,248, having been down more than 2% earlier in the session. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index declined 1% and the UK's FTSE 100 dipped 0.7%. Hong Kong stocks gave up early gains to end Wednesday slightly lower following two days of big losses. The Hang Seng Index fell 47 points or 0.2% to a seven-week low of 20,798. The tech index rose half a percent and the Shanghai Composite climbed 0.1% to 3,284. 
Shares of Chiangchi Lithium fell as much as 11% in Hong Kong in the morning session on their debut yesterday before recovering to close at their offer price of $82. The supplier of the key material used in batteries raised about 13.5 billion Hong Kong dollars, that's about 1.7 billion US dollars, in a secondary listing in Hong Kong, which is the largest deal of the year for the city. The company is already listed in Shenzhen. The eight shares dropped to as low as $72.65 on Wednesday morning before rebounding, but they closed 43% below Qianqi's shares in Shenzhen, where it retains its primary listing. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil climbed almost 1% to $99.85 a barrel, and gold is at $1,732 an ounce. In a volatile session in the bond markets, the yield curve inverted further with the difference between the yield on the two-year Treasury note and the 10-year bond, now the most inverted since the year 2000, which traders take as a warning sign of an impending recession. The yield on the two-year rose 10 basis points to 3.14%, while the 10-year yield fell 6 basis points to 2.91%, leaving the gap between the two at minus 23 basis points. And in the currency markets, the euro tumbled to parity against the dollar for the first time in 20 years after that CPI print. Before rebounding back above $1, it's currently at $1 and a third of a cent. And the euro is down about 12% against the dollar now since the start of the year. The Japanese yen is trading at 137.64 against the dollar. Sterling is at $1.18.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 31 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.73 in offshore markets and in a chaotic day in the crypto markets. Bitcoin ended 3% higher, currently at $20,200. And around Asian stocks this morning, it's a flat open for the ASX 200 in Australia. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down a third of a percent. Cosby in South Korea also down a third of a percent. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 150 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.09 and a half. Let's go and welcome our guests. As always on a Thursday, we have with us personal wealth advisor Enzio von Farm. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining him, Nitin Dialdus, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Nitin. Good morning. Just want to delve a little bit more into the details about uh, that US uh, inflation print. As you heard earlier, 9.1% now in the 12 months from June, and it's up uh, just from uh, 1.3% from, uh, uh, from May alone. Um, price gaze, gauge, uh, gains were broad-based. The increase in energy contributed to almost half of the jump. Food prices, they were up 1%. There had been a hope that a shift in spending from goods to services would help call inflation. But then in a worrying sign, services inflation climbed 0.7% on a monthly basis. That was up 5.5% from a year ago. Shelter-related costs drove a significant portion of the increase, rising 0.6% for the month, 5.6% year over year. Prices for transportation and medical services also increased. Um, so in Enzio and Nitin, if you look at this um, inflation number, the price of everything has gone up, hasn't it? The only notable exception I could find were airfares, which did fall 1.6% after two months of double-digit growth. But what do you make of this pretty dire report? Well, 
I think it's one has to always be careful what type of glob number one is talking about because inflation is an inflation. You have cost push and demand pull inflation. Here we have everything, don't we? Absolutely. We've got everything. The key this time is actually this oil price of 50% then, which is cost push food up one percentage point, I'm assuming. Um, that again is cost push because of our friend the weather. So... Um, I'm afraid that a lot of what the Fed is doing is making yet another mistake by tightening, tightening, tightening. It's going to go into overshoot and stagflation going forward. So my guess is, and the, the FT is quite good about this, that it's not only the oil price that's rising, but all the derivative products that come off the oil price, like gas and other things that I just don't really know anything about. Um, but it, global supplies become extremely tight because of a shortage of refinery capacity in the U.S. and Europe, and the oil price is going to rise because of increasing demand, especially out of India and also somewhat out of China. Nitin, this is a real shocker, isn't it? Because if you go back a few months ago, I don't think hardly anyone was expecting to see inflation above 9%. Yeah, um, definitely, even now, I mean, I think everyone was expecting it to be about mid-8s for this month, and, you know, we got above 9 So, yes, it is a bit of a shock, but the problem was, just to go a little bit further back, is the Fed didn't actually tackle the inflation early enough as well. They thought so it was transitory. It was, you know, the whole thing of talking about transitory inflation for mm. God, for almost a year. What a huge mistake in uh, hindsight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. But, the, I mean, everyone was shouting from the rooftops that it's not transitory, it's pretty evident. But I guess for them, they were trying to manage a COVID situation coming at, you know, economic stimulus packages from that and trying to balance it all out. But, yeah, they made a huge mistake, for sure. And intellectual herd immunity, well, if, if Peter's saying it, then Paul would also say it, and I will agree with Peter and Paul. So I think that's also been part of this mess. The only one who's had a bit of common sense has been Janet Yellen, who has come out saying there's cost push and demand pull, but I'm not aware of any other Fed member, and she's obviously not Fed, she's Treasury, we know that, um, any Fed member actually differentiating between the types of inflation and thus the types of different types of policy responses needed. Well, inflation, as well as being an economic issue, it's also a political issue, isn't right. it, as well? Um, President Biden's playing down uh, this rise. He says the data covers a period before a sharp drop in prices for energy and other commodities. Do you buy that? Well, also that Uranus is crossed with Saturn because Pluto is coming out of Mars. Absolutely, I agree. Mm. In I, other I, words, there's always an excuse. I did get some data. I did go through some of the commodity prices, how much they are down from their peaks yes. now. Um, lumber down 58%, nickel down 54%, mm. aluminium off 37%, mm. natural gas down 31%, mm. steel down 28%, wheat off 28%, and copper down 22%. I could go on and on, but mm. there is some argument here, isn't it? This does suggest that at some point soon, we're going to see inflation peak, aren't we, with those sort of declines in, in commodities? I'm not so sure, if I can... But in, um, okay. because again, the 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 cut in refinery capacity, the increased demand from India, those things ain't going to go away that fast. The um, and so I, I don't think it's I, th I think it's actually going to be quite sticky going forward. Mm. Um, I'm looking at about seven to eight, really going into two or two three. Mm. I was going to say, I mean, you can look at it maybe from a month on month basis that it might kind of stabilize a little bit. But let's not forget where we were a year ago. Mm. So yeah, while they're off twenty eight percent or whatever from you know from their recent highs, 
a lot of the commodities are still up considerably from a year ago, and that that's something that we've got to you know take into effect. Mm. And of course, that war in Ukraine and the Russian sanctions aren't going to go away that soon either. I'm, I think most of us would agree. I mean, we've blamed the Fed for not acting quick enough. Um, but how much was all this COVID spending responsible for inflation? There's been $5 trillion of stimulus in the US to shield businesses and households from the um, effects of the pandemic. In hindsight, um, that's been super inflationary, hasn't it? Well, it goes back to 2007 8, the GFC, when the Fed, as we all know, really opened the monetary spigot. So it's not just the spending of more recent year, but also going way back 2007-8. And that, that's that's where I think Dick and I would agree that you know, that's been mistake number one, then calling it transitory inflation number two, and now mistake number three coming, that they're going to be going overshoot, looking at uh, Fed funds, I think, of about 10% mm -hmm. up, up at the top. 10%. Um, yeah, well, they're going to be about 3.75% by, by, by mm -hmm. the September, according to my sort of back of the envelope calculations. And um, then it's going to overshoot. Surprise, surprise, then we get stagflation. Gee. And recession. Yep. Yes. Um, the, the, the Biden administration is saying they've got to make more progress. They've got to be quicker in getting price increases under control. So what should the government be doing to achieve that aim? Um. I think there's not a lot. I mean, a lot of it is external factors. I mean, as we've said, we've talked about the war in Ukraine. They are behind the curve. And as NZA said, they're probably going to go overshoot for sure. Mm. Um, but it's, it's not very easy once you start getting this process started. Um, I don't know the answer. NZA, have you got an answer to that? <laughs> well, I think that... Again, so much of this is supply-side driven. Again, I get back to my cost push demand pull inflation sort of thing I keep on grating on about, that if they also were to provide tax incentives um, for, say, refineries to open up and really get going again, that would alleviate a lot of things. Um, so they can't control the weather. We kind of figured that one out because of, El, because of La Nina this time around, not El Nino. Um, so, but I think the tax incentive fiscal policy could help on the tax side to just make to make it more attractive to produce more of the goods that are needed. But mm. I think that also there's a it'll take time, right? So there's mm. no quick fix, that's for sure. No quick fix. Um, well, because but, they've been kicking the can down the road. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And you know, cheap money for 20 years. Eventually, it's going to come home to roost, and I think that's what's just happening now. You know. So. Let me ask you about the Fed response to this. The Fed has always said it remains extremely data dependent. So this data suggests an even larger rate increase is, ne is needed, doesn't it? The futures markets are now pricing in a 66% chance of a 100 basis point increase uh, next week when the Fed next meets. And then a 100% chance of another 75 basis point rise in, in September. Do you think this is now on the table? We, uh, the Atlanta Fed president, Raphael Bostic, said everything is in place. So a 1% rise next week, is that on the table, do you think? Uh, very possibly. Um, it's going to be a question of what they look at. And as, again, we just alluded to just now, a lot of the commodity prices have come down this month. And when they make the decision at the end of the month, are they going to start taking that into account and then just say, let's just stick to 75 basis points? Um, but if you're just taking the pure headline number, then it's 100 basis points rise for sure. 
Well, and again, because they're, they're neglecting the structural causes of inflation, the cost push side, they will keep on blindly pumping away at demand pull solutions, and that's mm -hmm. about as effective as repairing a car with knitting needles. Well, the bond market is screaming recession, isn't it? The yield curve's inverted even further. And actually, the markets, interestingly, after this year, they're then pricing in 100 basis points of rate cuts next year, starting in, in February. They're basically saying recession, the big R, is, is here. Very stable policy, I must admit. So the little bit oops, oops um, policy responses. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's – I'm, I'm not so sure that they're going to be able to cut because if they stay as biopic as they are with this cost – with this demand pull inflation story, then I've, I'm looking at the Fed funds rising even further than the 3.75 mm. by September. Give well, me a sense of what this means for Hong Kong if we get a 1% rise next week in interest rates in the US, followed by another 75 basis points in September. We know the HKMA has to follow that. What's it going to do for the Hong Kong economy? Well, I mean, I think it's going to have a knock-on effect on the property prices. At the moment, the banks have managed to keep their prime rates uh, stable. They haven't actually increased it because they've had that little margin. But that margin now disappears, so they are going to have to start raising the uh, prime rates, which then will start raising mortgage interest costs for people, uh, homeowners over here. Already we've got them a mass exodus. You add that to the fact you've got these interest rates rises, I think you're going to start seeing property prices come down quite considerably, and that's going to have some sort of knock-on effect on the economy. From a consumer point of view, Hong Kong people are net savers, so they might be getting interest on their deposit, which is not a bad thing. Um, but certainly on the business side and on the property side, it's going to have a pretty screaming buy on effect. banks. I'd say, Nitin, no, Pardon? big buy on banks. A big buy on banks. Margins I think, yeah, rise. I think the margins are great for the banks, yeah, and they've been getting yeah. hit, which has been surprising. But I think people are looking at it from a mortgage point of view and thinking. Mm. But again, secondary owners have fifty percent margin, so they're not going to default tomorrow just by these interest mm. rate rises. Thank heavens. And I think people aren't really looking at that either. Okay, yeah. we've had some data out of China as well. China's export growth beat market expectations in June. They grew 17.9% last month from a year earlier to 331.3 billion US dollars, compared with 16.9% growth in May. That was the fastest pace since Jan January. Imports, they grew by a much slower 1% in June from a year earlier, down from 4.1% growth in May. China's total trade surplus. It was a record $97.94 billion in June, compared with $78.76 billion in May. If you look at this data, you would think first, first sight, all is well with the China economy, isn't it? There's no weakening of trade whatsoever. It's still uh, the big power driver behind the Chinese economy. But is it as simple as that? It's not. The, um, I think Nitin and I have been in this game long enough to know that at the end of the cycle, it's always people clutching at straws saying, oh, this, China can do this on its own. Um, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I know that um, the very smart Jean Chia of the Bank of Singapore was in yesterday's FT on page 13 saying that with the Politburo having met in April that China's policies might ease up. But she, then she does say that there are five buffeting headways, headwinds in China, zero COVID, weak loan demand, skid and high-yield bond prices, structural rises off that stinking U.S.-China relations thing and the warning of investor of waning investor friendliness in the Chinese. On top of that, you've got um, 
the triple whammies of the inverted yield curve that we talked about, the falling copper price that we haven't talked about, but which Lytton was alluding to and you were alluding to, and then Larry Summers' rule of thumb that every time inflation is about 4%, unemployment is in effect about 4%, then you have recession coming. So the, the bottom line is that all of China's increased output very soon is going to end up in inventory mounds that's going to end up in mm. a huge inventory financing crisis in mm. China. Nitin, I mean, obviously, good numbers, but is this really a blip? It's really a rebound from um, the lockdowns that we saw in, in May and then the economy reopening in, in June, which sort of gave a boost uh, to, to exports. But as we've been talking about earlier, if the rest of the world is slipping into recession, it's hard to see, isn't it, how that export growth can be sustained? Yeah, I mean, you take the export number again on a one-month basis, it looks great. But like you said, there's been pent-up demand over the lockdowns from May, uh, April, May. Um, but then look at the import numbers. I mean, it's up 1% That's against 3%, weak, and it's quite weak. So that also tells you how yes. domestically, Good point. you know, things are weak, It's you know, domestically. And pe- let's not, you know, kid ourselves. The consumer in China is, you know, they, they don't want loans because they don't want to spend. They're scared. They don't, you know, they're tightening whatever they can, and they're not going out there to spend. So, to, um, yeah, it tells the story of the rest of the world opening up and them having some sort of demand and China still being in a closed situation and very weak demand domestically. A lot of talk about removing in uh, tariffs, the US Biden administration removing tariffs. Is that going to provide any sort of boost to trade? Uh, No, because it's... it's I mean, it's, it's this book that I wrote some years ago that the bulk of China's trade deficit with, with uh, of, of America's trade deficit with China, beg your pardon, is very much because the U.S. multinationals are so fantastically successful in China that they're replacing exports from America. That means that they're making about four trillion bucks offshore every year, zero tax. Okay. Well, great to hear your thoughts. You heard there our regular Thursday commentator, Enzio von Fahl, Nitin Dialdis, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.24. On the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, um, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen are in Asia. I'm interested in actually what Janet Yellen is doing because it's not been widely reported, really, what what she's here doing and and what she's saying. But one of the things she raised yesterday, uh, she has said that China's lack of cooperation on debt issues is quite frustrating. What does she mean by that? Uh, well, she's talking about uh, Belt and Road countries that are indebted to China or other countries that are indebted to, to China and uh, giving conditions, uh, some of the things you were talking about in the previous segment around the world, uh, recovery from COVID being among the most challenging ones. Uh, she had wanted more cooperation from China. It's not clear, though, why uh, Secretary Yellen or the administration would necessarily think uh, China would agree to this simply at, at a request from the U.S. Uh, why, don't, why don't you renegotiate uh, some of some of the loan terms that China has with other countries? And, and you know, Sri Lanka, of course, has been a notable one as well. It's been in the news in the last few days. Uh, but, but again, it's not clear why China would would do this simply at the, the request of the United States. Mm. I mean, is, is it is she saying that the problems that are in Sri Lanka, the the economic problems, and also in Pakistan, where they're both trying to get 
uh, loans from the IMF. Is she blaming China for that? That's part of the narrative, sure. Uh, uh, this is an issue that, uh, of course, the Trump administration raised as well. Uh, the United States has been discouraging countries from taking out large infrastructure loans from China. Uh, the United States and, and Europe have each had their own plans to provide infrastructure financing as an alternative to the Belt and Road. Uh, but, but again, you know, in the context of the overall relationship between the United States and China and all the various issues that have made the relationship very contentious in, in recent years, it, it just strikes me as somewhat odd, uh, if not unrealistic, that, that uh, you're going to go to uh, friendly capitals and then suddenly say, oh, by the way, uh, in addition to the other topics I want to discuss with you, uh, can, can, can China, are you listening? Because she's not talking to China, she's talking to Japan. Mm. And then she's, she's walking around saying, oh, by the way, can we get China to change the loan terms to, with other countries? It, it, again, I, I just don't see this as a realistic initiative. Mm. She, was, she was complaining, I think, wasn't there, that there was loads of different agencies that you have to go to in China that are responsible for these loan agreements, and it was difficult to get coordination between them. Yeah, wasn't that, wasn't that a peculiar comment? And, you know, it comes across as you know, whether it's the Treasury Department in her case or the State Department, which you would hope would have that kind of insight, if not the, the necessary relationships. She, she's saying, I want China to do this at our request, but I, I don't really know who to call. I, I, I'm having trouble <laughs> finding the right contact window. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm sure a lot of us, uh, a lot of the audience listening who do business in China ha, ha, might have encountered difficulties with getting permits or whatnot. And there, there's uh, you know, local governments and the central government. But, but again, it just strikes me as odd for, for somebody mm. in her position to say, I really want China to do this important thing for us, uh, but, but I don't know who to call. Now, she was in Japan, and she was also um, expressing concern about the rapidly weakening yen, or at least agreeing with uh, J Japan's finance minister about the weakening yen. Was there any talk at all of maybe some sort of joint intervention, or is that completely off the table to try and stabilize the yen? She may have talked about it. I don't know how that fits into the agenda of Japanese policymakers at the moment. Uh, and unfortunately for Secretary Yellen, she came to Japan right, right, right immediately after the, the tragic assassination of former Prime Minister Abe. Uh, so attention is diverted uh, by the people she was meeting with. Understandably, she had to cancel some some of the events. And it also seems that uh, a major focus of her trip was Ukraine and, and this, this idea of some kind of cap on, on the price of Russian oil imports that really would require an enormous amount of international cooperation. In Japan I, I be, don't understand uh, how that works. Can, can you explain how does this price, how are you going to put a price cap on an internationally traded commodity uh, like, like oil? How, how the, I don't understand how that's going to work. Well, that's exactly what people far more brilliant than us have said. <laughs> and, and I'm referring specifically to, to some of the top executives at, at the oil majors. They said exactly the same thing. So uh, it, it, it seems to be an idea, and maybe it looks nice on paper among uh, scholars, uh, but, but the, everyone who's looked at this has said, what, what are the details, and how would it really work in practice, especially as, as you alluded to? If you're not going to get 100% cooperation, and as of now we know that certain countries continue to buy oil from Russia, if you're not going to get 100% cooperation, there's still going to be an international 
market price. This just won't work, and it could mm. backfire in a number of ways as well. Friendshoring. That seems to be the latest buzzword, doesn't it? She was talking about friendshoring, which I presume means doing business with your friends and, and not with your enemies. That's right. So uh, you know, often we hear the United States policymakers say, come back to the United States, put a, put a factory in the United States. Or, for example, uh, Samsung and TSMC in the semiconductor space have agreed to build facilities, large facilities in the United States in recent years. Uh, but, but some of that, yeah, instead of saying, oh, bring everything back to the U.S., which, well, maybe uh, Japan or, or Canada or other countries who are friendly with the U.S. wouldn't be a fan of, we focus on uh, getting factories and manufacturing to move from China to friendly countries uh, mm. in Asia or South America, for example. Uh, but again, though, it just shows how, how, how packed her agenda was within a couple of days stops in each of these countries. I wouldn't be very optimistic of significant mm. initiatives coming out of that. And when she mentions mm. that, I think a lot of people are going to say, isn't that the Commerce Secretary's job? Isn't that mm. what Secretary Raimondo talks about? Why are you, the Treasury Secretary, talking about this? Okay, uh, Ross, thanks very much. Sadly, we've run out of time. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Quick skip around Asia-Pacific markets. The ASX 200 in Australia still flat. Uh, Nikkei 225 in Japan also flat now. The Cosby, though, is down about a third of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall about 120 points at the open. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. News coming up next, followed by back chats with Janice Wong and Paul Zimmerman this morning. The weather forecast mainly fine, very hot once again. That very hot weather warning still in force. Maximum temperature about 34 degrees. High temperatures are going to persist into the middle and latter parts of next week and then a few showers uh, this Friday and Saturday. Temperature right now, it's 29 degrees, 81% relative humidity. Times 8.32, here's Andy Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A patient's concern group says hundreds of people could be affected each day if the hospital authority cuts back on non-emergency services. The authority has warned that services might be adjusted as more COVID patients are admitted. Alex Lam from Hong Kong Patients Voices told RTHK that he hoped services could be reduced gradually rather than stopped overnight. He called on the authorities to reopen designated facilities for COVID patients. Of 3,000 daily is really a concern because even two years ago, we don't have this figure, but we suspended most of the services in, in HA. So now we have this number of people admitted to hospital. We have to think about whether we should reopen certain designated places for putting these people for visiting the service, including those near the border in Qingyi or other places, Lantau, say for example, to house these patients. Many candidates sitting university entrance exams this year believe their performance suffered because of COVID-19. That's according to a survey by the Hong Kong Federation of Youth Groups of nearly 600 Diploma of Secondary Education, or DSC, candidates. More than 60% said the pandemic had affected their preparations. Ken Hoy from the Federation explained how the disruption of face-to-face classes was bad for pupils. They need to accustom to the lesson online and also physical fluctuate quite frequently. That may affect their learning motivation and how far they learn. And for some science students, they never come to the lab for the science lesson for this academic year. That affect their learning to quite a large extent. And the short term of the examination schedule also affect their preparation too. 
The Immigration Department says more than 900,000 Hong Kong SAR passports have expired without being renewed since 2020, and it's calling on people to renew soon. The department's assistant director, Fan Hu Sing, said that with many countries relaxing entry rules, people planning to travel should pay attention to the date on their passport. Mr. Fan said two vehicles would be touring around the city until early September to help people apply for or renew their passports. More than 2,000 firefighters in Portugal are battling dozens of blazes as temperatures broke records in various parts of the country. The Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, tweeted that Portugal was approaching a period of maximum fire risk on many fronts. The BBC's Alison Roberts reports from Lisbon. The worst of the fires have been in Leiria district where 600 people were forced from their homes amid scenes that recalled the deadly fires of